HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Kotema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Academy Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program in my cookies. My guest today is Phoebe Ogawa, who is a wagashi chef based in New York. Wagashi means traditional Japanese sweets, and they are quite different from Western-style sweets in many ways, such as the ingredients, how it's made, and occasions they are served. And somehow, we don't see wagashi outside of Japan very often, even in big cities like in New York, despite the popularity of Japanese food. And Phoebe is one of the precious wagashi ambassadors abroad. She was classically trained in Japan and now communicates the essence of wagashi through her stunningly beautiful sweets to New Yorkers. So today we'll discuss what, what wagashi is, the differences between wagashi and Western-style sweets, different types of wagashi, how Phoebe studied wagashi, the challenges she makes uh, wagashi in makes wagashi in New York, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Phoebe Okawa. Hello, Phoebe. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So this is exciting because since I've seen your work, I, I really decided I have to have you on the show. So welcome. So, thank you so much. Yeah, so the, to get to know you first, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? So um, I was born in the U.S., but I moved quite quickly to Canada. So I grew up in Vancouver um, and Vancouver is quite multicultural, so I very much grew up um, eating a lot of food from many, many cultures, and, and primarily, of course, Japanese food at home through my mother's cooking. 
but also just uh, the culture of Vancouver leans quite heavily actually to like Asian and Southeast Asian uh, foods and cultures. So I grew up eating Indian food. I grew up eating a lot of Cantonese food, Chinese food, Thai, Vietnamese. And I even when I go back to visit, that is primarily what I like eating when I'm visiting as well. Mm. Right. Um, so your palate was trained for diverse um, tastes and flavors. That's amazing. Yes, I've never been afraid of trying anything new. Right. Okay. And uh, so perhaps most of our listeners are not familiar with Wagashi. So we'll discuss your background and everything later. But uh, so first, what is Wagashi and uh, what is the difference between Wagashi and Western-style sweets? So uh, Wagashi is, um, is a very traditional Japanese uh, style of confection. It's made primarily from rice flour, beans, sugar, and water. It dates back hundreds of, end of years. Um, usually, as historically, they were served as part of tea ceremony, um, which is very formal. Um, nowadays, it's a lot more, not a very, very informal now. Um, it's very easy to find in Japan. And I, I would love for it to be as easy to find here as well. It's one of my main goals is to try and raise that awareness um, and make wagashi more of an everyday sweet as it is in Japan. Mm, right. So, um, so when I grew up, uh, there's a very local uh, wagashi shop, and there's one uh, particular pink-colored uh, mochi-style sama. And uh, whenever I go to the shop uh, with my parents and my brother, that was my go-to sweets. And my brother had something else, and just everybody has favorite style because wagashi is so diverse, and everybody can be accommodated by just one shop. So. That's a very different idea of no cream, butter, sponge. Uh, there's so many different variations. As to me, there was a big attraction to uh, even go to just to look at the wagashi. But um, yeah, so the plant-based, um, that's the big difference, right? Because you don't use cream, butter, like Western. Yes. So um, it is um, quite like... Historically, it is very, uh, it does not use like uh, dairy, it doesn't use egg. There are, of course, it, wagashi is composed actually of many cultures that have come into Japan and Japan has taken it and make, made it their own. And that's what is what wagashi is. Um, so like thousands of years ago, like sugar came in from China and um, and it was more of a, kind of like um, a medicine. Like sugar wasn't something that was easily found. It was very expensive. It was inaccessible to many people. It was just for the rich and the privileged, and they were able to enjoy sugar, but only mostly as a medicine. And then, so we have the Chinese influences. We also have later on, the Portuguese and the Dutch influences. And they were the ones that brought in, especially the Portuguese, they brought in eggs, they brought in dairy, they brought in butter. And wagashi 
does there are wagashi um, styles that do incorporate eggs and they incorporate butter, but primarily it is uh, plant based due to mm. the history of Japan being based on Zen Buddhism, for example, which is uh, which does not cons- and it's not a meat based culture. Mm, right. That's interesting that, you know, human beings uh, call it medicine, whatever it's tasty, like alcohol, sugar, <laughs> then make it something special for rich people. So um, Japanese wagashi also. But uh, yeah, um, so the what is the history? You just kind of touched on many different moments of wagashi history, but um, can you maybe summarize when it started and how kind of, how kind of path it has taken up to now? Yeah, so um, for, there are many aspects of wagashi, like even just the most simple or one of the more basic forms of wagashi, like a manju, which is like a bun. So it's um, it's a bun that has some kind of filling in it. So, and like usually in wagashi, for example, it could would be filled with red bean, azuki bean, which is of course plant-based, but even that bun is based on a meat-based bun which used to contain like meat a meat bun and because of that zen buddhist culture they've replaced that red meat with a red bean um and even uh yokan which is a a type of jelly that was based on like cooking down meat and the blood and the bone it's like a, a stew of meats and that kind of aspic jelly that is made from the bones and the gelatin that's contained in the bones and the blood, like that jelly to make that is made again once more, like plant based, by using agar and uh, and red bean as well. It still contains that red color from yokan, uh, the from that aspic jelly, but they've taken it and made it into a dessert with the red bean and it, everything is based on these like Chinese influences that they've made that they've brought in and they've made into uh, their own, which is the Japanese wagashi. So yokan still contains, for example, the character for uh, hitsuji, which is a uh, sheep, which, so it, it was made from that um, sheep's meats and sheep blood, sheep bone stew. And that's why it still contains that, um, that character even now. So you can still trace that history through the thousands of years, up, mm. even up to now. Interesting. <laughs> that the original version of meaty jelly sounds very nutritious, but I think that <laughs> <laughs> there's an uh, influence, I think the Buddhism, right? Like uh, Shoujin cuisine, which is plant-based. And uh, in Japanese history, after 7th century, uh, everybody started to be not eating meat because of uh, the emperor Tenmu banned eating meat. So there's an, another influence, probably historically uh, religious uh, aspects in Japanese style plant-based food, which was, of course, the main street at, up, up until the end of uh, 19th century. So that's an interesting thing. Um, so, um, so that's a history. And then you said... Gradually, it used to be expensive sugar and started to be more available. And then going beyond rich people or tea ceremony, people started to eat wagashi more widely to, in the public. 
Yes. So uh, sugar, even there is the difference also in sugar. We use we the like dagashi, which is like that everyday wagashi, um, uses uh, kokuto, which is the dark brown sugar, uh, primarily, like mostly. And uh, jonamagashi, which is the kind of the tea ceremony grade wagashi that uses white sugar. So everyday sugar was for for everyday people and white sugar was reserved for um in fact for the imperial court and so uh kyoto shops that were um, designated wagashi shops they were the only ones who were able to use white sugar to create their sweets because they were serving the imperial court with these with these traditional sweets and so they also were able to enjoy a much higher status in the class system as well because of their um, ability and their skill in creating these um, sweets with white sugar and having that privilege of being able to serve the imperial court with their wares. Mm, Right. So that visual... um color only used white sugar and the flavor and refined taste also. Uh, do you think because they're serving to the imperial court, they, they really became beautiful, like visually uh, elaborate? Absolutely. So the imperial court um, is not just made, for, of course, with the emperor. There are many um, women who are part of the imperial court and they were, they of course enjoyed these sweets very much. And so, um, even just being able to show the show off their skills with colors, with shapes, with textures, that was very much a way to differentiate themselves again with uh, even other skilled uh, craftsmen. Mm, right. And uh, I think other very important part of Wagashi is the seasonality. So like everything in Japanese traditional cuisine, um, Seasonality is very important, and uh, wagashi is not an exception. So could you tell us about the importance of seasonality in the world of wagashi? Absolutely. Um, So many of the shapes are based on nature, So, and many of the ingredients are based on crops and whatever is in season at that time. Um, for example, in the fall, there are many wagashi that use um, sweet potato and uh, and uh, chestnuts. And in the spring, there's uh, sakura mochi, which uses cherry blossoms and cherry blossom leaves. Um, and even in the texture, for example, in the summer, you want something refreshing. So a lot of jellies are, are prevalent in the shops for things that are available at the at, in the summer. Um, so the seasonality it reflects not just in the in the shapes and the colors, but also in the ingredients and in and the textures and how they want and they believe people would like to enjoy them. And, I mean, it's the same in Western cultures in terms of, like, of you know, enjoying ice cream in the summer rather than in the winter. But having um, grilled and smoky flavored things in the winter is much more pleasing. And so they really um, want to showcase 
for example, having the shapes of uh, the seasonal flowers, it, it's, it reflects the shop windows. You would have these uh, wagashi, for example, of flowers. And right outside that shop, you would see that same flower um, blooming outside as well. Like it mm. has that uh, parallel with uh, with the wagashi shops and whatever is blooming outside the windows, whatever is in season in the fields, um, as well as, for example, even uh, in the in the calendar as well. There are different um, celebrations, and these celebrations are also based on on the seasonality of things as well, but there are specific wagashi that are eaten for certain celebrations. And just even seeing that wagashi would evoke for that person, oh, it's that time of year again. Like it's an immediate kind of visceral reaction of seeing the wagashi and realizing what time of year again or how fast the days have gone by. And they can reflect back to um, the last time they saw that wagashi. So it's very, you can really um, track the calendar by just looking into the shop window of a wagashi shop. Mm, right. And uh, for example, if you go to a tea ceremony, uh, the practitioner or the host uh, makes his or her own wagashi for the specific seasonal occasion theme. And um, it's such a, Amazing coordination, right? The teacups, flowers, and hanging scroll with uh, poetic calligraphy in the room, and the wagashi is another highlight. And uh, I'm looking at your Instagram page, uh, Ogawagashi, and I I saw this uh, June. That's the hydrangea, and it's I don't want to even eat it because it's so pretty, and the color vein <laughs> and the flower, it's just stunning. Like you don't want to touch it. At least you have to take tons of pictures <laughs> before you touch it. So, yeah, that's amazing. As you really think that, um, you know, it's just a sweet, but it's not. It's uh, the season. And uh, as you described, Phoebe, it's just, well, actually, to me, I maybe I'm biased, but it has so much in one piece of sweets. So, anyways, I, I just carried away because I'm so excited about this, your work. Thank you um, so much. So, um, but... You know, as I mentioned earlier, there are many types of wagashi, and you said that, um, you know, it's a diverse, reflecting the history where it was influenced by originally. So what types of wagashi are there? I mean, there are millions, but you can pick some traditional, um, you know, classic ones that maybe our listeners can try. Um, so even in just that kind of... Uh, um, for example, I, I believe that there's everyday wagashi and then there's the jona wagashi, which is the more formal wagashi. Like in, in, I think that's best reflected, for example, in Kyoto, um, because it's the only place, even in Japan, that differentiates the two, even with the shops. So in Kyoto, they have mochi manju shops, which is the buns and the everyday wagashi shops. And they are classed differently than the Jona Magashi shops, which cater to the tea ceremony uh, grade wagashi. Um, it's the only place in Japan that does that. Even just um, just uh, just a little bit away in Osaka, for example, or even in Tokyo, a lot of wagashi shops uh, serve both. They have the 
Mochimanju and the Jonamagashi, and they uh, provide both types in their shops. In Kyoto, it's the only place that has Mochimanju shops specifically, mm. and then the Jonamagashi shops mm. again. Right. That's the best kind of mindset. <laughs> yeah, so the Mochimanju is more like very much that everyday wagashi um, dango, which are like which is upon which you can find actually as an emoji symbol, that green, white, and pink um, balls on a, a mochi balls on a stick, for example. But <laughs> those are the everyday kind of wagashi um, that you can, for example, buy on your way home, for example, to enjoy with tea with your family, or even just by yourself, you can enjoy the dorayaki, which are two kind of pancake sweet uh, egg based pancakes um, with red bean inside and sandwiched in between or uh, manju which which can be steamed or baked Um, it's the jonamagashi that uh, is is what I believe I think people are um, less kind of uh, they they know less about which is I I think um, which is actually currently my bread and butter. That is very much my, um, I, I, that is my goal is to kind of raise that awareness for people here uh, to be able to enjoy uh, not just the flavors of Ogashi, but also the beauty and how um, it could, how they could enjoy the beauty and the seasonality of Ogashi through Jonamagashi. So what are the most popular ingredients of wagashi? Uh, the base ingredient is uh, is the beans. So it's either azuki red bean or uh, white bean. It's It would be tebo or shiro azuki. Shiro azuki is white azuki. Um, it's either red or white, uh, white bean based. Um, in... Here in the U.S., it's very difficult to source table mame, so I'd use something in the same family. Uh, it is a type of lima bean, so I would use a white lima bean um, instead of the table mame. So one of the the hardest things about making wakashi here is, of course, sourcing ingredients, um, either if the same ingredients as I could find in Japan or at least something similar that could replace it. Um, mm. The other thing that is very difficult to find are the tools that are involved. There are many uh, traditional tools that are needed uh, to create wagashi. So that is the other um, challenge I have here in uh, making wagashi. Mm. Okay, so uh, yeah. first let me ask you about this uh, the azuki bean paste, which is um, very unique. And then I want to talk about the different textures you can create from the same beans, right? So maybe koshian, tsuguan, that kind of thing. Can you maybe explain yes. for listeners? Absolutely. So I like to explain it kind of like, uh, at least in American terms, in the Western terms, as like smooth and crunchy peanut butter. So it's like tsuguan is like that crunchy peanut butter. It has its textural. So there's whole bean. It's more of a whole bean uh, jam. So it's like uh, you can it's cooking down the bean, um, but keeping the skins and everything, and having that kind of 
um, chunky, whole bean uh, flavor as well as texture. Koshian is a smooth uh, red bean paste or jam. So it's removing the skins and just using the bean inside and cooking that down with sugar and water. Um, so it's a very smooth taste. It's a lighter flavor as well because you don't have the flavor from the skin um, in it. Um, but the, I, I do you like using peanut butter as a kind of a, a sim, like a similar or as like a, an example of how you can differentiate between the two, koshian and right. sibulan. Yeah, interesting. Like the same beans, but uh, the whole texture and the length of finish, like how, how long the taste lasts, that's completely different. So, Absolutely, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in Japan, I think it's great to, to be able to find, of course, you can go to tea ceremony, but, uh, you know, department store, basement that's a depachka that's a famous food court every department stores have and it's it's the whole thing in the wagashi uh like namajo namagashi style very sophisticated one to um some more casual um you know the castilla to dorayaki to those yokan they have different versions and also of course in supermarkets and uh, some convenience stores carry at least one or two uh, good wagashi as well. So uh, wagashi is available in Japan, and um, it's plant-based. If you're vegan, vegetarian, most likely you can eat them too. So, yeah, I think it's going to be more uh, demand for wagashi in the future. So hopefully um, you, uh, Phoebe, keeps going and then educate people how great it is, how beautiful it is, how uh, it can be, wagashi can be a good occasion to celebrate the season. Just stop the moment, have a cup of tea, and your life is better. So, Absolutely. Um, yes, my my biggest um, goal, my biggest object, objective in making wagashi here in the U.S. Is, is education. It is to raise the profile, to raise the awareness of um, wagashi. As you said in your introduction, like sushi and ramen, all of these Japanese uh, Japanese cuisine is, is so recognizable. Now I would love to elevate wagashi in the same way to, and not just have it as, as just mochi or mochi ice cream. I want it to be something that people can find anywhere and all the time as you can in Japan as well. Mm-hmm. So that is absolutely something that I hope to achieve. Right. And uh, we didn't mention, but uh, traditionally Japanese wagashi tend to be handmade, like you do, Phoebe. And, uh, and they don't use um, mixers or something very uh, machine-driven, which is great. But uh, in terms of wagashi, it's more like... Uh, kind of craftsmanship required in terms of a good flavor, traditional wagashi. And even testimony practitioners, they make their own wagashi too. So uh, there's a soul in it by from whoever makes it. And that's another big part of wagashi, which is relevant in Japanese food culture, I think. Yes, like the craftsmen um, kind of indelibly leaves their mark with every wagashi they make. Everything is handmade. It's 
it is fortunately and unfortunately <laughs> difficult to kind of mass produce. Um, but I would love for people to learn about it and then perhaps even uh, try and find out, for example, of ways to make it themselves even, or um, just to even take a moment to learn more about. And, um, and that's, I think, is the goal here mm. as well. Okay, so we'll take a quick break here and then when you come back, we'll dive into how Phoebe classically studied wagashi in Japan and the beautiful wagashi she makes in New York. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Akikotayama, and my guest today is Phoebe Ogawa, who is a prominent wagashi chef based in New York. So how did you get into wagashi? And do you have any moment of revelation to start loving wagashi? Um, so I absolutely had uh, zero knowledge about wagashi. Um, of course, I would visit family in Japan as... A child with my with my parents, but I didn't really know or even enjoy wagashi until uh, I was much older. Um, I had a friend actually in New York City who uh, decided that she would try her hand at making her own wagashi at home, and I was only there as um, as really just for fun. I've always enjoyed baking Western sweets, so cakes and cookies. So I've always had an interest in that aspect of cooking, but I'd never tried or even imagined that I would enjoy making wagashi. Uh, she tried for an entire summer, um, and I tried along with her. She stopped, but I kept going. Um and it was in a moment in my life where I'd stopped to think what I wanted to do next. Um, and I decided to give myself a year where I can do whatever I wanted to. And then just have a moment uh, just to myself. And I decided that I would go to Kyoto and learn how to make wagashi. Uh, and at the time, there weren't very many online resources, for example, so that I could learn on my own, as you can nowadays. But um, so the only way I could learn wagashi 
uh, was to go to go all the way to Kyoto, essentially, or just to Japan. Um, and I thought, why not Kyoto, which is the birthplace of Wagashi, in at least in the formal sense. Um, and here we are. Instead of the year, I took another another even further year to continue my studies, and then a little bit more, and I just kept going. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, you know, you decided to go to Kyoto, but this is a big decision. And, but, um, and I heard you really pursued a very authentic path to study, right? So what kind of did you go to school, like specified, uh, specialized in amagashi making? or what, what kind of course was it? Yes. So as a, as a Westerner, I didn't understand how to go about learning wagashi. So I took a very uh, kind of automatic, oh, there should be a school for it kind of uh, approach. So I, I did my research. I looked up schools and I chose a uh, pastry school in Kyoto. Um, but when I got there, I wasn't so um, happy with the, with, uh, the amount of wagashi that we were uh, able to learn at school. So just two weeks into my course, I went out and I started to uh, go to shops in Kyoto and and try and just learn from them directly. Um, I continued my school studies, but um, uh, but I also... Uh, made sure that I would be that I would be training at these shops as well. I was fortunate enough to um, to begin work at a shop about a month into my time in in Kyoto, and actually that's where I stayed until um, almost until I left Kyoto to come back to New York City. Um, I had both kind of that the formal training in both senses of a kind of a curriculum, but also the hands-on training uh, and being able to see the process of wagashi being made from beginning to end in, in a large number in a shop as well. Mm. Right, sounds like the most efficient way to study something very uh, special. So, and then uh, you, after that, you used to make wagashi in New York for the now closed but very popular cafe called the Kokage, and uh, in Manhattan and upstairs of Kokage was the Michelin star Japanese shojin or plant-based restaurant, Kajitsu. So how did you get involved in Kokage in New York? So I was uh, quite lucky. It was very serendipitous. But when I was in, in Kyoto, I um, had friends from New York City who actually worked at Kajitsu, uh, not in the kitchen, but in Oh, actually, yes, as uh, there was a chef there that worked uh, at Kajitsu in the kitchen, but also had some friends who worked as a server, servers in, at Kajitsu, just very uh, randomly. Um, but it was, it was quite fortuitous. I was able to meet the owner of Kajitsu who lives in Kyoto, and um, it was through him that I that he actually invited me to uh, return to New York and to uh, work at Kajitsu as a pastry chef there. Um, he really 
also had the same kind of uh, vision where he wanted Wagashi to also be uh, something that was more known in the U.S. as it is. And he wanted that path to start at Kajitsu. Mm, right. So unfortunately, it's his, uh, the owner's decision to close Kajitsu, but um, now you still keep making a beautiful wagashi. So where do you make your wagashi now? Uh, I currently have a kitchen in Long Island City in Queens. Um, I uh, provide wagashi to a Japanese market called Mogmog Market in Long Island City as well as uh, through a lot of uh, tea ceremony events in the city, um, both Omote Senke, Urasenke. There are a lot of um, tea ceremony events now happening and now that the uh, pandemic has um, kind of slowed down. Everyone is like starting up again. There are uh, lots of events happening, a lot of uh, tea uh, teachers and their students coming together again and uh, there is more of a demand now for formal wagashi. Um, my understanding was that there were a lot of uh, wagashi being made by either the tea ceremony teachers and tea ceremony students um, but I believe now they are kind of looking they are still continue to make their own, but they also, for larger events, for example, um, they've now started to ask elsewhere, and that elsewhere it happens to be is it was with me. Mm. Wow, that's exciting! So um, I'm sure uh, once someone sees your Swiss, uh, they want to try uh, work with you or buy your Swiss. So. Where can we taste, our listeners can taste your wagashi? I provide uh, wagashi to the general public through Mogumong Market. I um, I strive to kind of change the menu often so that people can continue to come to the market uh, and try something different uh, every month. Um, I also uh, work with uh some tea shops, and that includes Kettle and Greenpoint. Uh, their flagship store is in Greenpoint, and we are working together, to. and they are providing wonderful teas from Japan, and I am providing them with wagashi on the weekends, fresh wagashi on the weekends, uh, for people to try along with their teas. Mm-hmm. Um their goal, I believe, really overlaps with mine. Theirs is for the, is in the education processes of, in sorry, their education in um, in Japanese teas. And I, mine goal is again with uh, people for them to learn about wagashi. So I love that our goals there are overlap, and so I really love working with kettle teas. Mm, right, so Zach Mangan, the owner and the tea master, some way, <laughs> he uh, came to the show twice in the past. And uh, so you're going to have an event uh, at Kettle in Brooklyn, uh, Greenpoint Group Brooklyn, uh, in July, uh, on July 8th, that's Saturday. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, he, uh, Zach at Kettle, he invited me to. 
come and do a workshop with him. He will be emceeing the event and and uh, and uh, serving teas alongside my wagashi. Um, he really loved the idea of making the wagashi fresh for the customers um, in, and in front of them. So they are not just able to enjoy the wagashi itself, but also the making of the wagashi in, in front of them. Um, and I really loved the idea. Like I usually am in my kitchen and just kind of like making the wagashi by myself and just, uh, and um, I'm perfectly fine without an audience, <laughs> but um, I really love the fact that maybe then people can see the various tools that are used and um, the various kind of like shaping um, movements and uh, and Owashi, as like anything else, tastes delicious when it's freshly made. So I'm really hoping that uh, there are more opportunities like at Kettle Tea in July, um, for me to be able to showcase uh, not just the wagashi itself, but the process of making wagashi as well. Mm, right. So how uh, carefully you make with hands, that's also, and then at the end of uh, the work, what you see is like a gem looking beautiful sweets that you can actually eat. So, yeah, so again, it's a kettle. Um, as kettle is that they have website is K-E-T-T-L, uh, C-O, I think that's their website. And uh, that's on July, Saturday, July 8th, uh, three times, 11, 1, 3 p.m., uh, three times a day. Yeah, so I know that Zach went to Japan and I spent like half his time, six weeks, and then he brought back a lot of interesting tea as well. So, yeah. Um, okay, and uh, so what is the biggest challenge in making wagashi and selling wagashi in New York? It's actually, it is actually um, for people to know what wagashi is. Um, if they if they don't know what it is, it's uh, they won't not come and seek it out. So it is kind of telling. It is that um, it is that it has a very low profile um, when people. Um, sorry, when I go to events, for example, and and I have this opportunity to show wagashi, like 90%, 99%, I don't even know, but a, so, a, such a large percentage of people who approach me, they approach me because they see the wagashi and they're curious. And they're curious because, they, and because they've never seen it before. And... If not for that event, I'm not quite sure whether or whether they would ever or how long it would have taken them to even know the word wagashi. So it is very much a challenge in awareness. Um, but once they do once they do learn what wagashi is, uh, the challenge then is for them to convince them to try it. Beans are not something that is that is enjoyed in the West, in the western culture to be sweet. <laughs> it's very difficult to tell somebody or try to get somebody to try beans that are sweet 
because they are so used to having them in a savory context. Um, it's not so attractive as <laughs> as an ingredient as, for example, like a cake or butter or dairy So as an ingredient. So it's very much um, an education challenge. Sure. Mm. Right. Well, once you're told what it is, uh, it may be hard to, um, like, it's a thought process. But uh, whatever I eat, wagashi, it's so light, gentle on my body, and I, I don't feel heavy or anything. And uh, it's just the quick energy I get and uh, ready to go, kind of <laughs> really clean, light. Uh, sweets. So that's why I really like about it and goes well with coffee. Um, but uh, who actually are eating your sweets right now? And so um, Mogumogu Market is actually a wonderful outlet. Um, they The customers that come to the market uh, come to seek out like a sushi sushi ingredients and a lot of the Japanese ingredients that they are very that people in the U.S. are very aware of, um, and they just happen to come across my wagashi. So, um, a lot of uh, customers at Mogumog are very much first-time uh, customers to wagashi as well, um, and uh, otherwise, it's very. Uh, It's either you've never seen it before and you're trying it for the first time, or you are part of the, uh, or you are Japanese and you are here in the U.S. and you really miss wagashi and being able to access wagashi. So I get a lot of um, feedback from customers who are Japanese who are just so happy to be able to have wagashi again in their lives, and that really makes me happy. I'm always nervous because they know exactly how wagashi should taste because it's something that is very familiar to them. So um, I never really want to disappoint them if it's so different from what they remember, what they're used to. Um, and one thing I can share is that um, a lot of Westerners, when they go to Japan, they try wagashi there for the first time. They are usually a little bit surprised. They f they kind of feel that the wagashi is sometimes too sweet, for example, in wagashi in in Japan, um, and uh, which is which may surprise some Japanese people because they might feel that Western sweets here in the U.S. are so sweet, um, and it's a different kind of sweetness, I believe. Like in Western sweets, you have like other things, not just sugar that's in this, the, these um, pastries. There's there's butter, there's dairy, there's eggs, and they kind of cut the sweetness in flavor. Um, so even if you have the same amount of sweet sugar in either a wagashi or in, or in a Western sweet, they, it might feel sweeter in the wagashi just because there's nothing to cut that sweetness It is just mm. purely the beans and, and the water and the sugar. And it's a very pure sweetness. Right. Um, and for me, um, it's very much a personal preference. But I also like things to be a little less sweet. So the wagashi I make, indeed, it does contain um, less sugar than 
the traditional recipes that you may find in Japan for the same wabashi. So um, it's not really an effort of mine that's not like my goal is to use less sugar it's just a preference for myself and um i think that may be due to my own upbringing here in the west and i liked and even just a personal preference i just like things a little bit less sweet so my wabashi is a little less traditional in that sense that it uses um less sugar as well mm-hmm. so it is it does feel less sweet yes right Interesting. In other words, you directly taste Awagashi's sweetness because there's no cream or butter, like the fat element that coats your tongue, um, which is another joy, but Awagashi is something different. And I know that there uh, is a big company like Minamoto Kichoan in New York, and they sell Awagashi too, or Toraya that used to be here. Uh, but if uh, listeners go to Japan, going to any supermarket or convenience store, well, most likely, I think, uh, listeners will be excited to see uh, the department store food court. They really showcase beautiful wagashi. And then that's where people can probably find how special wagashi is in the Japanese culture. And again, it's not just the sweets and taste, it's uh, the seasonality. Like you said earlier, oh, this is it's this time of the year. And it's so visually beautiful. And also Japanese uh, gift-oriented culture. Oh, this is so beautiful. Let's buy it for someone. And as a gift, to look um, at the smile of the person who receives it. So that's very um, um, very social and uh, the celebration life kind of thing. So, yeah, I think wagashi is not just the equivalent of sweets in any other culture. In Japan, it's the context of um, whole society life, um, I don't know how I can explain more, but it's important, right? Yes, it's like also like a striving for a common experience because like they share the same culture, they share the same kind of traditions. They see something that evokes something in them, and for example, in seasonality, and they want to share that experience with somebody else, and they would like they would, for example, bring that piece of wagashi of um like uh, like you mentioned before the hydrangea and they might bring it through the rain because it is the rainy season that hydrangea blooms in japan and they would go and visit a friend and they would bring that hydrangea wagashi to them and they can enjoy the hydrangea that is that are blooming out blooming outside in the rain and then enjoy it inside as well with the wagashi and then they can talk about how they hope that the rainy season is soon over, about how it, how hot it is getting and how summer is really approaching so quickly. Um, they have they can share that kind of, and have that common experience to share just through having that wagashi together. Mm, right, even rainy season, uh, it's not so bad if you have beautiful wagashi. <laughs> exactly, yes. Right, uh, so... I mean, the wagashi changed your life, but what's most exciting about making wagashi to you personally? I do love the kind of discovery that people, like seeing that um, sense of discovery in people when they have it for the first time. It's very rare to be able to share something that people have 
never had or have never experienced in this like um, in this kind of age where the internet is so is prevalent they can find anything they need to online um, but yet you can bring something to their lives that they've never seen before they've never tried or even if they have seen it before they've never had an opportunity to try so I really love that sense of discovery that I could see in my in my customers and and people who um, come and seek it out it either through the market or through cattle or even through a tea ceremony that they were invited to. So that is absolutely my biggest joy. Mm, Right. And uh, in Japan, we see more innovative wagashi chefs as well as chefs who work hard to preserve beautiful traditions. So uh, the examples of innovative wagashi can be non-traditional, visual powerful presentation and some addition of new ingredients like chocolate uh, which is exciting too so how do you predict the future of wagashi inside and outside of japan um so i personally i think um as both an insider and outsider i am uh, i'm ethnically japanese my parents are japanese but being born and raised here i have um kind of this sense of wonder in the traditions, the traditional part of wabashi. I love using traditional shapes. I love using the uh, traditional colors of the wabashi. So a lot of my designs are very, very, um, are just very traditional. They're very much based in old forms and old um Old, like um, old forms and shapes of the wabashi from the past. Um, I think that that isn't going to change. Like, there's a reason that these shapes have continued and they haven't died off. Um, that is, I think, the tradition part of the traditional. <laughs> the Japanese people love tradition, and I think that. That isn't going to change, um, but as you mentioned, I, there are the ingredients. For example, the use of ingredients that are changing. Um, traditionally, wagashi isn't flavored, but I personally like to flavor wagashi with um, fruits and seasonal fruits um, and ingredients from here and in, in that are local, that are seasonal. Um, I might use like peaches in the summer, um, for example, um, and or cherries or just all of these beautiful um, seasonal ingredients that you can find here. And it is absolutely a way to entice people to try wabashi um, because uh, I can use the kind of familiar element of these uh, seasonal ingredients to try and entice people to try wabashi for the first time. Mm, right. Well, that's exciting. But the essence of Japanese cuisine is always seasonal and local, sustainable, what's available. So it sounds like really uh, uh, pushing the envelope of Japanese wagashi here in New York. So, um, so what are your plans and dreams? I mean, you mentioned your dreams to educate everybody. 
how special Wagashi is. Um, any plans you are on your mind? Um, I like this process, this like path I'm on currently. I love being able to um, provide wagashi in smaller kind of batches, be able to kind of able to see my customers directly. I really love that. Um, I like being able to make wagashi at my current scale, being able to see customers through the market and then being able to work with other business owners directly um, so that they can um, use wagashi and serve wagashi to their clientele as well. So it's a... I mean, especially younger generations are looking for plant-based uh, everything. And Wagashi is perfect. And also visually, you can be creative. If the new Wagashi chefs are going to be born in the city, they can be very creative. And I can't wait to see them, what kind of creations they really started to do. So, um, And I think you are the source of inspiration, of course. Um, so where can we find your updates online and on social media? Uh, yeah, so I um, um, I make sure, or I'm trying my best to um, to keep my Instagram page updated with all of the seasonal wagashi that I serve every month. Um, sometimes I'm able to kind of provide uh, special sets or special seasonal celebrational wagashi that you can find at at Ogawagashi. O-G-A-W-A-G-A-S-H-I. And that's on Instagram. That's cool. Yeah, your Ogawa last name and Wagashi, you combine it. <laughs> Ogawagashi. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> that's awesome. Right. And uh, so, the again, the kettle, uh, you're going to have event on July 8th. That's uh, kettle, K-E-T-T-L, no E, K-K-T-T-L dot C-L. And uh, Mogmog, the supermarket, people can go get um, PB's Wagashi, it's M-O-G, M-O-G, one word, Mog Mog, uh, that's the word, you can just look up in Long Island City. So, yeah, this is exciting, so uh, keep me posted, maybe you can uh, come back and discuss more, because Wagashi is such a big topic, and uh, it's not enough to cover in one episode, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, I'm, it was absolutely my pleasure to be able to speak with you today. So good luck, and I look forward to tasting your wagashi more in in the future. Thank you so much. Right, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org or at kyukatema.com. Japaneats is a weekly program and is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. My engineer is Liam Warner, and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Spanish is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.